Inspired by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision making. And in true baller style, we'll serve it up with good old fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now at five foot eight from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. Also, weighing in at just over 200 pounds with a full beard from the Philadelphia 76ers and the other MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Daryl Morey. In our seventh episode, we are thrilled to welcome Andrew Friedman, president of baseball operations for the world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. Andrew joined the Dodgers in 2014 after nearly a decade serving as the general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays. Under his leadership, the Dodgers have claimed six division titles. Last season, he was named MLB Executive of the Year. Today, we'll discuss Andrew's insights on the Dodgers' historic season, the evolution of analytics in Major League Baseball, and his perspective on the future of the sport. I, I don't remember the initial contact. All I know is that we were tracking what Tampa Bay was doing and pretty impressed they were winning with like one one millionth of the resources of the Yankees. That's about that's about the right ratio, right? right <laughs> Something like don't that. Like they like Andrew would go out into Tampa, panhandle for money to sign players, basically. <laughs> the other thing is I think something like 10% of his season ticket holder base would die from year to year. So that was also a financial constraint in Tampa. So we were tracking that. I noticed he was from Houston. I don't know if you reached out to us first. I don't know. Maybe maybe because we're the Rockets, you might have reached out to us first. But long story short, we all flew down to Tampa to figure out how the hell they were winning with no, um, you know, with no money whatsoever. Like... Everyone talks about Moneyball, but no offense to Billy Bean and everything, but Tampa Bay was the Moneyball team. They just uh, they just didn't have Michael Lewis write about them. So, so Andrew Andrew figured out that to win the championship, he needed to change teams. It just took you a little bit longer, Daryl. Took me longer <laughs> to figure that out. Yeah, I'm gonna get right into the questions, but but Andrew, if you want, you will have your opportunity to trash talk Daryl. And like make that. fun of him. Okay, so that's going to definitely that. happen. How that's can we trash talk Andrew? He just won the title for the most iconic franchise in baseball. So it's tough. Well, and, and and they keep getting to the to the World Series too. So well, I guess first, Andrew, congratulations. Obviously, winning over your previous organization, which must have I think probably felt sweet. But I Daryl alluded to it already. But in a in a previous podcast we had with Nate Silver. He did say that the Rays are the real best analytics organization in sports. Uh, and you obviously built that organization. So the key question here is, what have you been able to do, given the financial resources you now have with the Dodgers that you weren't able to do with the Rays? Um, I mean, I think the 
kind of lazy answer to this or the quick blush answer is with the Rays. I think every market has its own unique challenges and baseball is very uniquely kind of situated with very different markets in terms of fan interest, TV deals, et cetera. And <clears throat> that we have noticed when I was with the Rays that there were some smaller revenue teams who tried to keep up with what the larger market teams were doing and tried to time windows and try to behave like them. And, you know, for us, it was about knowing what our challenges were and operating within it. And so the analogy I give is as a doctor, like we focused on the knee and we knew literally everything about the knee and appreciated that we couldn't play in other parts of the body and just focused all of our time and energy on the knee. And part of what made going to the Dodgers appealing to me was kind of throwing myself in the deep end and having to rethink about things and how to value different things. And <clears throat> what was overwhelming in the beginning was that literally we had to be experts on everything. And it couldn't just be about the knee anymore. We had to be at the forefront in every respect and had the resources and the ability to do it. And that was something that intellectually I knew going in, but drinking out of that fire hose and just how overwhelming it is in the sense that I'm probably my own harshest critic and a couple years in, I was like, we're not good enough. Like this isn't happening quickly enough. And you know, so many things that we did with the Rays happened organically. And it was just a lot of really curious people that wanted to do really cool things together and things just kept building on itself. And we were really good at kind of looking back and assessing what we had done to keep making everything we were doing a little bit smarter. And going to the Dodgers, all new relationships, um, you know, no kind of systems in place. And all of that was happening at the same time, which was overwhelming. But at some point, two and a half, three years in, um, was able to kind of take a step back and appreciate what we had accomplished and how much you know more we had to do. But it was just a much more overwhelming undertaking with just the fact that you could do anything and everything. And so it's how to prioritize that and attack it. What was an example where the resources really helped you? And what was an example where all the extra resources uh, maybe still ended in the same dead end? Um, where the resources kind of dead ended were with vision. Like I've long been fixated on vision and coming into baseball and I'm first spring training and I'm watching the players physicals and <clears throat> they are doing an eye test on our players. That was no different than like what my grandmother does for if she can keep her driver's license. Like cover an eye, read the eye chart. Like this can't be the best way to do that. And have been on like a 15 year crusade where I still don't have as good of an answer, you know, getting fighter pilots and all kinds of different training methods and really trying to understand it, um, you know, that innate ability and then whether or not you can train it. And it's something that kind of went down that rabbit hole with the Rays, have gone down it with the Dodgers. <clears throat> like the brain is different, but the eyes are kind of the windshield into that and don't feel like 
it's anywhere near what I envisioned in 2004 of what was possible on that front. And to say that, you know, 16, 17 years later, um, I think suggests that I haven't quite hit that holy grail yet. But, um, and in terms of what we can do, it's a lot. I mean, I think, you know, with the Rays, our player development system was really good and we had a really good group in place and how analytics kind of supported it and how they worked together. But I always felt like there was more. And, you know, I think the lazy, like, I think the yield in player development right now in Major League Baseball is way higher than it was 10, 15 years ago. And I think a lot of it was you draft talented players, you put them in a good system and the talented ones will make it and then guys who aren't as talented won't. Felt like there was something more and just the resources that we've been able to pour in on the development side, uh, you know, the marginal dollar is just not as important here as it is with the Rays. And so it's been easier to kind of go down different rabbit holes and figure out like how to allocate our resources in terms of staff and tech and um, that I think has actually like been incredibly uh, lucrative. It's really interesting. We had Mina Kimes on and she was talking about the NFL in particular. The uh, Daryl said that the NFL is 20 years behind baseball. And her example, which you just really, I think brought to light is there's all these quarterbacks coming out of college who are unknown entities who end up being stars, right? Right in your backyard with, with the LA chargers. So I guess like, how would you think, so you've done some things, you've applied some capabilities, maybe it's people, maybe it's the systems and the tech and maybe, or maybe it's new data that you've created. What is actually really causing that improvement for you? And you don't need to give away any trade secrets because it might be a competitive advantage, but I think whatever you're comfortable sharing there. I really, it sounds like a cop-out answer. I really think it's a combination. Um, and I think the fact that we're all on the same page and it doesn't mean that we don't argue and debate and, but we're all like our interests are aligned in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And we are aggressive in terms of trying to innovate, but very pragmatic about how we do it and the thoughtfulness of how to, you know, roll something out to make it as effective as possible. And, um, you know, I think it's really the combination of that, but having people who believe in innovating and are driven and motivated by it, but also believe in collaboration. Like we, like it's not a great environment for people to come in and say, hey, I'm the master coach, just watch me work, as opposed to all of us get together and there's different people who in different disciplines are more kind of experts but appreciate that sometimes someone that's not as mired in it might have a really good thought or idea. And I think that environment and constantly trying to get better and push things and evaluate in areas where we weren't as good and what are some action items of how we can try to improve upon it. So I don't know that it's one like secret sauce and you know, it's something that, you know, we've lost a lot of staff over the last five or six years. Um, and a lot of people trying to get at it 
and the reason, I mean, obviously for the employees who've left for meaningful promotions, it's great for them. I used to be way more consumed by not losing people and, you know, the secret sauce. And, and now I've come to appreciate that there's no one person that you can take and replicate what we're doing. It really is an ecosystem. And that includes me. You can't just take me out of this and put me somewhere else. And I will be able to, you know, flip a switch and create what we've created here. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a cop out answer, but I really think it's a combination of all of it. In terms of resources, didn't you didn't you once bid like fifty million dollars just for the chance to pay somebody or something like that? Isn't that like? I mean, there is a posting system, and um, yeah, but I, I tell you, with the raise, um, our owner. Uh, or their owner, uh, Stu Sternberg was awesome at like appreciating investment spend and what it could yield and could not have been more supportive in us. You know, I think we were a little bit, you know, just our threshold was higher. Our hurdle was higher to kind of push something, but he could not have been more supportive in trying to figure out ways to innovate and, just do things differently than the Yankees and Red Sox. So, and Andrew, I'm terrified because I just came to Philadelphia and uh, the GM here, Howie Roseman, won the championship three years ago. And at this moment, every talk radio station is about how he should be fired. So uh, I thought, you, how long of a window should you get after winning? Uh, where you should not uh, be the subject of talk radio. It's a city of brotherly love. Um, my my great uh, Philly story, and again, I think the Philly fans are incredibly passionate, and I really respect that about that fan base. In 2008, when I was with the Rays, we played the Phillies in the World Series, and they had not won a major sports championship in 28 years. They beat us an hour and a half later. We're kind of all getting on the buses and loading up to go to the airport. And there are 5,000 fans kind of lining the gates outside where our buses pull out to rock our bus and tell us we suck. I'm like, really? <laughs> have fun. Enjoy the night. Like, you guys won for the first time in 28 years. Go enjoy it. But it's, it's uh, you know, that passion that they have. And, um, you know, here, I think it had been a long time and with no disrespect to Kirk Gibson or the 88 Dodgers, I'm so happy not to watch that Kirk Gibson home run uh, ever again with the, uh, it's been since 1988. So, you know, I think our fan base was dying for a championship and, you know, the fact that we were able to deliver this year is awesome. Like the passion that our fans have, it's 50,000 people every night, uh, really is incredible. And so to be able to get back and, you know, the number of people that I would encounter walking through Dodger stadium who were like, I know where I was in 1988 when Kirk Gibson hit that homer. I know where I was when we got the final out and just the fact that they had to keep going back to that. Uh, so now, you know, creating some new memories for them. Well, you've certainly done that. I think we you talked a little bit about um, some of the areas of need and what you guys are trying to do. 
as you're looking broadly across Major League Baseball, where do you think are the big opportunities from an analytics perspective? Because a lot of the discussions that we've been having is that there's just small improvements that can still be made, but it seems like you've codified some potentially big ones. But is there anything else that you're looking at from a new data set perspective or anything along those lines? Yeah, I, mean, I think we're getting more and more information every year. And it's about, you know, kind of how to synthesize it, how to make sense of it and what we're using it for. There's times where it's used for evaluating a player and there's times where it's used for development and understanding where those things kind of bifurcate. Um, and then when the information is really telling us something as opposed to an incidental finding or something that doesn't necessarily have signal, we're better at it today than we were a year ago. And hopefully we'll be better a year from now than we are today. And hopefully we're kind of outpacing what's becoming available, newly available. And so we're able to kind of outpace our competitors because at the end of the day, it's all relative. And it's still about putting our players in the best position to have success and how to make them the best versions of themselves. And there's no question that the information and insights that we have into each specific player is way more than it was 10 years ago. And so now it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to relay that to the player. Some guys want reams of information and data and you know, want to really dive in. Some don't want any, and we have to kind of figure out how to work it into their drill packages and um, continue to assess it. And, you know, we're continuing to kind of improve upon that. And I think the players that we have had in our minor league system that then have graduated to our major league team have been much more, it's been just an easier transition and process. And, you know, I think a big part of our success over the last six years has been how quickly our young players have come up and had success. You know, there are a lot of stories of good, talented young players who come up and they struggle for a little while. And it takes them some time to, you know, find their footing. And for us, that is something that we are very proactively trying to do everything we can to put our guys in the best position to come up and succeed because we are trying to continue to transition our roster while competing. Like we're not looking to kind of pull back and rebuild. We're looking to continue to do that on the fly. And it's critical for our young players to come up and have success for us to be able to do that. And more aggressive kind of individualized plans. Like we now have a lot more insight into each guy, how their body works, how it moves, what that means biomechanically, how to get them in the best positions, like where they're deficient, where, you know, you know, you try to avoid having kind of lazy, hard and fast rules, but 10, 15 years ago, you almost needed to, like, you just didn't have the insight. And so it was, you know, <laughs> what will reach the most people, what could impact the most people appreciating that there will be a lot of people littered along the side of the highway that you're not reaching. Now we're able to much more specifically individualize everything. So on, on that front, I think one of our tensions that you guys must face is the players who are pro players because, for lack of a better term, they're gamers. They're, they're guys who have been winners, 
have used their obviously their talent, but a lot of it's their skill and intelligence for the game to get them higher and higher up to the levels. And then you have guys who, you know, at least in our sport, have longer arms, can jump higher or quicker, and you have the equivalent of that in terms of whatever might be fast twitch muscles, better eyesight, whatever. Are you guys more towards getting the guys with the raw talent and now you can player develop them better, or are you still pretty interested in like the guys who are more uh, gamers, for lack of a better term? Uh, the guys that are better gamers, it's a better quality of life play. Like I love being around those guys. I respect them. It's easy. They really care and give a shit about getting better and like winning and it's just a better quality of life. Um, but I'd say both. And, um, you know, the universe is finite enough in terms of, you know, the best players of the world that in the world that are doing this and the niche role we might have or a specific need. It's just finite enough where I don't think we can rule out either, but I do know that the guys that really work hard and, you know, <laughs> really pay attention to the smaller details, you know, typically aren't the most talented, although I think Mookie Betts is an exception to that. Um, but is something that, you know, it's just a better quality of life, but I think both are important in terms of vetting and having on your roster to win. Last, last question on this. If Billy Bean, who apparently was, if we believe the Michael Lewis story, this physical specimen, Ellen has vouched for this, who watched Billy when she was young and watched the Mets, would he have done better now in your development system? Like, would he have been a better pro if you had the development system you have now? Yeah, I mean, I think you can go back to virtually any failed prospect over the last 15, 20, 30, 40 years and argue that they would, now, it makes sense, right? Like evolution and like every four years, Olympic records are broken and people are getting bigger and faster and stronger. We're getting smarter at how we're doing things. We have more insight, like we should be way better than we were 20 years ago. And I think we really are. And I think um, now I think for some failed prospects, there's a mental aspect to it. That it's a little bit of chicken and egg because if they were having more success, would that manifest itself in a way that made it difficult for them to perform? And so I would argue that they would be in a position to have more success. So if they were having more success with that kind of stave off some of the issues they had, and I don't know the answer, but um, there's no question that the yield is higher, just how much more so and would it catch everybody? Probably not, but I'm not sure exactly who would slip through. Andrew, is there one, or is there a position that you found it's more impactful in having them in your development process in terms of predicting their success? And or is there one that's less successful or you haven't cr quite cracked the code on it yet? I mean, I think hitters who have an innate ability to make contact and can look over a baseball 
and are aggressive at pitches in the zone and passive out. Those tend to be more innate. They don't have to be, but they tend to be. Um, and it's easier for us to work with that skill set and help develop power and different things than taking a guy who swings and misses a lot and has monster power and kind of getting that to a profile that is, you know, is consistent and that doesn't have the variance in terms of performance. I think it's just more challenging with that profile, but I wouldn't say it's hard and fast. We, um, we had a panel at MIT last year on fraud detection. Have you guys, can you guys tease out of your data now? Um, when something's jumping out as a consistent anomaly such that you could tell if players are, you know, enhancing things like that. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, we have theories and I think it's more lazy than it is data driven. And I think we are just as likely to be wrong as we are right. So we're not putting much stock in it, but we probably could be better at it. We just haven't focused a lot on it yet. I saw Theo going to the Major League Baseball front office. I would think that's the kind of stuff he might look at, plus you know, making the gameplay better, maybe from an analytics perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think you know there have been some unintended consequences of data and analytics, and you know how people are slicing things, and you know, just like the example of. Olympic records being broken every four years. I, personally, and I'm biased, but I think hitting, you know, being a hitter in Major League Baseball is the hardest thing to do in professional sports. And it's getting increasingly harder. Guys are throwing harder. But even at a time when they're throwing harder, they're throwing less fastballs. And the insight into how to attack each individual hitter as opposed to 15 years ago, you had like a generic game plan. You know, go down and away to get ahead and then don't be afraid to finish them with a slider. And it's just so much different now. And so guys are throwing harder. They're throwing the pitches that get swings and misses more often. They have more insight into how to attack each individual hitter uh, more specifically. And so we're seeing strikeout rates skyrocket. And I don't know what to do about that because I think it's the natural kind of evolution of people. And like, I don't think necessarily moving the mound back as some have, you know, kind of thrown out necessarily accomplishes that. But I think there's a lot in terms of fan interest and captivating the younger audience and what really lands with them and like I'm a bad person to ask because I couldn't have more respect for watching the best players in the world do what they do and whatever that kind of falls out from that I'm fascinated by but I get that I'm not the target audience here and I'm in the minority and so studying you know I think different potential rule changes 
in combination and not in a vacuum. I think a lot has been talked about like, well, what if we ban the shift? Well, with nothing else behind it, you're increasing the number of singles. You're not increasing contact rate. You're increasing the number of singles. And is that really what's going to drive younger fans to be like, oh, I can't wait to watch this game tonight and watch more singles? It's hard to piece together three, four, five hits in an inning and score runs that way. It's difficult just with the strikeout rates where they are, as talented as the pitchers are. It's just a tough way to, it's a tough business model. I, yeah, I was just going to, I mean, I think it's a really great point and spot on. The question is, are there any rules? You kind of mentioned it's not really a rule to baseball right now. You talked about the trade rule earlier, but are there any rules that you think, oh, this is a no-brainer, whether it's for the fan or whether for for the fan and their experience? So like, you know, seven innings for a doubleheader, as an example, probably sacrilege to you, or actual changes to the game, like the like moving the mound, that, that you would say that might make sense. I wish there were there there was one kind of rule. I think it's doing things in combination, and they are talking about doing an automated strike zone. So it is a potential lever to play around with in terms of you know what's called and what's not. Um, I think fans really want to see more stolen bases. The problem is catchers have more arm strength release the ball quicker, like it's harder to steal bases today than it was. And I think you need to create, I think it would be helpful to create some rules that actually stimulate, it puts the risk reward of stealing a base back to the positive, because right now it's out of whack. It doesn't make sense to attempt, but I personally enjoy watching it. I think fans would enjoy watching it. And so whether it's limiting the number of times you can throw over and then what that actually does in terms of the game theory of how big of a lead you take in the beginning and try to draw a throw over and then when you know they can't throw over anymore are they going to pitch out like I think there would be a lot of strategic elements to that that would be fascinating kind of game within the game um, you know a lot of people have talked about the opener and just From a strategic competitive standpoint, there's no question it can be really beneficial. Depending on who, what your alternatives are, it can be really beneficial. But fans don't necessarily like, hey, this guy's opening and then this guy's going to be the bolt guy. You know, people do talk about baseball in the sense of, you know, hey, are we going to watch Kershaw Scherzer on Thursday night? Like starting pitchers kind of are the marquee names of at least talking about watching a game and how to enhance the value of a starting pitcher again. And one idea that was proposed four or five years ago that I didn't love when I first heard it, and the more I've thought about it, the more I like it, is going to the DH in both leagues, but tying the DH to the time that your starter is in the game. So your starters in the game for six or seven innings you have a dh for that time as soon as your starter comes out of the game the relief pitcher goes into the dh spot and then you get to the strategic element of a national league game with double switches and pinch hitting and um and it enhances the value of a starting pitcher 
and it decreases the value of a one-dimensional burly DH. And directionally, I feel like that's appropriate in both instances. Um, and so that's an interesting thing that I think will be talked about more in the next year. How much How much of your opinion has been shaped by moving to the Dodgers on that? Because I'm sure your Tampa Bay self would be like, I can't pay for starting pitchers. Uh, I need the opener. There's no question about tell you the thing that like was like haunted me the most when I was with the Rays was the DH. And it's this free spot in your lineup with a guy that it doesn't matter what else he can do. And you should be able to get real offense out of that position. We couldn't. It, it was the highest paid position in baseball on average when I was with the Rays. And we couldn't afford that. And so we were taking guys and trying to put them in that role. But they're such a specific person that can actually handle being idle on one half of the inning and then figuring out a routine. And we spent so much time vetting potential DHs and then also trying to help our guys of creating end game routines to be able to go out and hit. And they really, like, we failed miserably at that. And so I was a fan of trying to get rid of the DH then. What, uh, what about radical changes like two balls as a walk, one strike as an out, just like real radical changes? Um, you know, it, it's like, these are the kind of things that I spend very, very little time thinking about. <laughs> it's more, whatever the rules are, people who are allocating a lot more time to it, whatever it is, just tell me what it is and we'll figure out how to operate within it. I am interested in that. I hope baseball's popularity continues and, you know, I hope that it's something that we are able to really captivate the younger fan and continue to really grow the game aggressively over the next 20, 30, 40 years. So I do care. I just don't spend any time really thinking about it. Um, but I care about the outcome. Well, I think part of it is the, that we've talked quite a bit about is what are some learnings or rules from other sports? And I think baseball is maybe a little less applicable here. They're like, oh, I wish we had that. So, I don't know. The trading of draft picks, for sure. I don't remember <laughs> what year it was, but I sat in the Rockets draft room the year that you guys took Morris and Parsons. And Daryl basically had, like, standing offers out to every GM in the league for every pick that was coming up. And just watching the chaotic, like, it was crazy. And I can imagine you know, just the opportunity that's created from that. Um, I've long wanted to have I forgot. I forgot that was the year you were there because that was the year we traded the 38th pick out and back. Like, so we traded it to another team and then it went in a roundabout way and we got it back at the end. Yeah, <laughs> love I believe that's the first time that's happened within. And the Morris brothers and watching this yep. stare down yes. between you guys and the Suns and all of it was fascinating. I actually just love that you guys as analytics leaders in different leagues are sharing concepts and trying to learn from each other. Cause there's really no other industry where you would see that happening. It, well, yeah, we can't I mean, share with other teams. So it, it, it makes, it makes sense. Well, so. and it's so counter to the business side. Uh, I would say not, not in, well, I guess it isn't really, but yeah, I mean, in many cases, like for example, in Boston, you know, you're competing for sponsorship, maybe not fans, in some cases fans with the other teams in town. 
but not necessarily if you guys were both in the same location, but it's great. We yeah, would, uh, Andrew would come in every holidays because his family's from Houston and we'd go to the breakfast, breakfast club and, uh, and, uh, trade. Uh, I would mostly be trying to get stuff from him because again, we, we, Basketball truly is behind baseball still, so. That's not fair. I was picking his brain as well. Okay, so what have, what have you borrowed from Daryl? Um, player health and conditioning stuff was something that in 08, I think we were way behind on, that we hooked up our trainers and performance guys with the Rockets guys and um, – even just questions like there are times where Daryl will ask me a question on if we're doing something and fireworks are going off in my head because we're not and it's a fascinating question and it's something we should be I think people I work with used to be really annoyed when I would go to breakfast with Daryl because he would ask something or something that would unlock some thought that I would ping him with an email and just frantically people are rushing around trying to think about, you know, how to answer it and why aren't we doing that? And um, so I think they all loathed when I would go meet Daryl for breakfast. I had the same recently, Andrew, because Andrew gave me a cool reference to some, some of his secret sauce that he's trying and the guy they're working with is trying to like work in other sports. And so, yeah, he, he just actually talked to all our people uh, this week. Andrew, so that's that's it's been an interesting uh, it's been an interesting conversation on player health. The thing that shocked me once I met with the uh, I won't say which NFL I met with an NFL team, not the Patriots, um, <laughs> but I met with an NFL because no, Jessica can't get me into the inner sanctum to actually learn stuff. So you talk okay. to Nick. You no, talk she's to Nick. she's smart to keep all her secret sauce to herself. I, but I introduced you to Nick. I know. I met with an NFL team and I was talking about their player, you know, how do they work on the performance of their players and make sure they're healthy as they go into the playoffs. And I'm not kidding. The stare I got back was, was like, you know, like, it was like, what are you talking about? It was basically like when our players are hurt, we give them more drugs. So they are <laughs> available the, the weekend coming up. And if they're, can't go we get the next guy <laughs> so i was like i mean it makes if you think about it they only play 16 to 20 weeks right and you know why worry about like making sure they're healthy in week 16 just have it be a complete car wreck during the year and then let them recover for the rest of the year i mean that this was just one nfl team so i don't know if this is all the, nfl teams I'm this is daryl's this is Daryl's NFL that Daryl's giving right now. Yeah, yeah. It's his it's his every podcast is bash on the NFL. He's just jealous because it generates more money than the NBA. And I you know, I tried to have Mina Kimes come on and they went toe to toe and it was actually I, I was I was killing analytics in the NFL and it's not their fault. They have like no data. <laughs> you obviously know way more than I do about this, and I probably know ten percent of what I should know. It feels like there is tremendous opportunity in the NFL. Like just from afar, it feels like there is a lot of low hanging fruit. All right. So um, we're going to go into game time. So Andrew, this is the last part of the podcast. 
And Daryl, I'm definitely going to put you on the spot to ask some of these questions since we, we okay. covered some of this stuff. But so our, this sure. game is called bench trade or tag like franchise tag. So it's our version of kiss date or marry. So basically we're going to give you three options and you're going to assign them. The key thing is you need to give the explanation as to why. So Daryl, so you can kick bench, us off. Trade, tag. Yep. Yeah. Tag is the best. Don't I'm don't question it, Andrew. <laughs> what was that? I said I'm hoping it's not baseball players, but go on. Oh no. No okay. no 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 no. We wouldn't we wouldn't do that too. Oh we we might. Can we do historical? Daryl might. Daryl would. Daryl might. He would, historical players. You're right. He would do that just to put yeah, like he he, he he wants you to get be fine. All right, uh, baseball statistics. You get to kiss, bench, tag, marry, whatever our things are. <laughs> I bench, can't trade, tag. Bench, bench, trade, tag. tag. All right, runs created, secondary average, and wins over replacement. Wins above replacement, sorry. Trade, release, uh, whatever. That's where secondary average is going. Um, Bench, um, it's hard for me to decipher between the two because I think there are positive aspects to both. I think they both have some shortcomings. Um, I'll go with war as a tag and weighted runs created. I will bench, but it's very close. Like tomorrow, I may change my mind. If, if, when I'm writing out my lineup tomorrow, I might flip them. <laughs> what uh, can I ask you? Where do you where do you stand on the the great Andrew Jones war debate that's raging in the uh, analytics community? Um, I have to feign ignorance. I'm not familiar <laughs> with it. All right, I will summarize the arguments for you. Much more consumed with like today's player and for, for, evaluating them and finding opportunities, and I I missed it. First off, credit to you to worry about your family and winning titles and ignoring, uh, ignoring the current debates in the analytics community. And the political um, world also took up some bandwidth for me over the last couple of years. Uh, it was harder to. Yes, that's fair. That's true for all of us. All right, so Andrew Jones has a war, uh, a wins above replacement that would put him like at a level near the Hall of Fame. But it's entirely based on the estimates with bad data during his career of like generating, I don't remember exactly, like like, like 10, eight wins a year on defense or something. And Bill and I, Bill would be mad at me that I'm not summarizing. He, Bill Bill thinks it's absurd that that Andrew Jones is being considered to be as good as uh, people think he is. Um, I think he was a dynamic defender. Where exactly that falls out, I'm not sure because the data wasn't good enough. Um, I think he was a really really good player. To me, he wasn't a Hall of Fame player. Um, but that's also without like really vetting and comparing and you know, I couldn't have more respect for players in general and even more so for players that make it to the Hall of Fame. 
but it's amazing how little time I spend, like when the ballot is coming up and people are voting and there's all the hoopla around it. I don't really have any kind of real strong takes except for the ones that are like really obvious where my mom's like, oh yeah, yeah, Derek Jeter's gonna get elected first ballot. Like beyond that and like the juxtaposing them to other players, like I just haven't spent much time doing. But my lazy take is that I would say Andrew Jones falls short of being a Hall of Fame player. And to be fair to you, so Andrew doesn't beat you up at the winter meetings or something, you would probably toss quite a few people out of the Hall of Fame would be my guess. That is fair. Yeah. I'd put him in the Hall of very, very good major league players. (laughs) That's a new hall. (laughs) Well, that that is the Baseball Hall of Fame. Let's just be clear. (laughs) Like with the veterans... With the Veterans Committee, they've they've clearly made the Hall of. That's why Bill uh, Bill Simmons has a good concept of having the the Hall of Fame pyramid, where each level you go up, and at the top you got Babe Ruth, and you know then you then you then you can argue about the levels, and everyone Mount loves Rushmore. arguing. Yeah, you're Mount Rushmore of the Hall of Fame, and then you kind of branch out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Or there's an analytics Hall of Fame, just separate. There's Maybe. not one. Andrew is going to start it next year in his free time. Daryl, if you have another one after this, but which experiential changes from the 2020 season do you think should stay or potentially should stay for the 2021 season? Universal DH. I think I know your answer there. Runner on second in extra innings and expanded playoffs. So I'm only answering this from my perspective, not like if I, as if I were commissioner of baseball. Because expanded playoffs, from my perspective, I don't like. But if I were the commissioner of baseball, I would. And if I were thinking about the, the greater good of the game, I would wait more and value more than I do in my chair. Uh, so that one is definitely trade, release, um, take out back. <laughs> I talked to Andrew before this playoffs. They had an extra round. I was like, they just cut your chance of winning by like almost half. Yeah, but you fought through it, baby. Nice work. It uh, it, it was a gauntlet for sure. Um, and then the runner on second or universal DH, I will uh, bench the runner on second, and I will tag the universal DH, but with my kind of stipulation of it's tied to the starting pitcher. Yeah, I like that. All right, we've asked almost everyone this one, Andrew, last one. Which sports current set of rules are the best? Baseball, soccer, or football? So I guess it's finding the rules that are common. So it's like, <laughs> I, I'm having a hard time because of just how different the sport is. In baseball, you can still lead with your head. I don't know. I mean, with being with the Rays for 10 years, I always was longingly looking at soccer and the transfer rules and just the added element that would provide when looking at, you know, the right time to move a player and it just opens up the universe in terms of what monetizing and trading out of a player looks like. 
And, you know, there are times where the player return would be significant enough where you would forego the 50, 60, 70, $80 million that you could potentially get for a guy in a transfer deal. But there are other times where your return is short of that and there was no real rhyme or reason for it. It was very circumstantial. <laughs> and so I would like to have had that additional lever to potentially pull. So I'll go with soccer being one and baseball and football, I think, you know, tied. So I'll tag soccer and then the other two will flip a coin. All right, I think that, I think we're good on this. Andrew, Thanks, thank Andrew. you. Of course, I like, you. I like your background, despite what Daryl had to say. I just thank asked you, where it was. I like Wait. the good cop, bad cop bit you guys got going. <laughs> We've been friends for a long time. You know, he was the officiant at my wedding. So she, she's regretted that ever since. But yes, yeah. <laughs> he went around to all my friends that that day saying that he was the most powerful person in the world. Do you want to get married? Do you want yeah, to get married? You, in Massachusetts, you get you get the uh, power to marry people for like one day. No, That's awesome. that is there minutes on the Internet and what that created for that one day. Yeah, he was like a bouncer at a bar. No, he legitimately just for clarity could only marry us there were he couldn't just randomly start marrying people his interpretation that, that's how we we're choosing to interpret the rule that night so yeah. that's right my cousin was the officiant at my wedding as well and he he went around wielding it as well and <laughs> not appreciating the limits to it see so Daryl. yeah yeah that makes sense though that makes sense All right, well, thanks, thanks for being on post game huddle Really enjoyed that conversation with Andrew. And I, my, there's a couple of things that were just awesome. First and foremost, hearing the two of you, the stories that you were sharing and how you learned from each other was just the him being in your trade room. Has he allowed you in, in his or in, in the draft room? Has he allowed you to be in his draft room? His is boring, though, he told me. So I think he I think he just didn't want me to see, though. I think it was all a ruse. But yeah, no, I have not been able to go over did you feel good about the fact their draft is in the middle of like our draft it's in the middle of their season it's very different so oh that's interesting that's also i mean it's like an interesting challenge that they yeah. maybe have but that did you know that he had borrowed the to the extent that he alluded to the player health and uh conditioning yeah he stayed in touch with a lot of our staff and in fact a lot of the people in that room of you know, like Monty and James Glick have gone on to uh, to uh, be GMs later and have been in contact ever since. So, wow. Well, was there what? What do you think was the most valuable thing that you maybe have learned? It doesn't need to be something recent because obviously you had a recent breakfast. Yeah, alert. no, I think the biggest thing I took away from that 08 meeting was how intentional they were to their cycle, meaning because they had less resources, they had to plow everything into certain seasons. So it definitely informed like when, when we were, when, when I was with the Rockets, when we were close to winning the title, we would definitely go for it like they would. That's cool. That's, I mean, that's an important learning. Put it on. I think you like kind of do that. I've seen you gamble, uh, <laughs> learned a few tricks from you. All right. So my second big takeaway after, other than that was, 
the, the focus they have and the differentiation they're making between player evaluation and development, and in particular, how they're really focusing on more aggressive and individualized uh, programs, which I think, you know, you have alluded to, that's a big part of what the NBA is doing. And it sounded like also something that's happening, happening in the NFL is, I mean, is that kind of the next, is that the only next thing for analytics that you're seeing too? That's the big one I know will pay dividends. Um, it paid huge dividends in baseball. Uh, actually, frankly, the Astros probably had the most uh, celebrated cases of that, of pitchers coming in and them developing customized plans. But I know the Dodgers and Rays were also, and probably other teams were also big on it. Um, and basketball, you know, the Spurs have historically been the best player development and uh you know, I think uh, most of the teams are still playing catch up there. Well, I uh, it's it's certainly very interesting to seeing that as a focus, especially. And again, we know the the HIPAA rules on health, you know, could be challenging. But to see where that really plays out over the next few years, my last one, I loved his concept on the risk reward of rule changes and coupling those concepts. So the designate designated hitter and the starting pick pitcher that was just such i had not thought of that i'm sure you probably had i mean a little bit i think yeah that's why i asked in my follow-up that where you sit and the resources you have and which city you're in can even in ways you don't even understand can shape how you look at certain rules and decisions and things like that um and uh yeah, I mean, I, I always was more in favor of rules in Houston and now in Philly of more player movement because players want to play in Houston and Philly. But if I was in a market that's tougher to recruit for, like, say, Tampa Bay uh, in baseball, then I would I would be less for those rules. So there's some current um, rules that are up for debate or discussion in the NBA. Is there one that you if it happened you think this other component would also need to happen to make it balance? Just uh, good question. I know the rule I want the most is I want to copy the NFL's uh, trade rules in that they allow um, they allow flexible compensation based on results. So you in the NFL you can make a trade like I'll send you this wide receiver, and if you make the Super Bowl, I will then send you an uh, another draft pick for that player. Uh, that would be that would be something I'd like to see in the NBA if, if possible. What do you think would need to happen to make that more balanced? Well, I think the that reason that's being held back is it does add a lot of complexity to the system, and I think that's been the main reason. I think conceptually, uh, the NBA is they're a bunch of smart lawyers, and they they understand that it would be a positive, but they're weighing that against the complexity of what the trades would look like, and and. Uh, and that's the reason it hasn't happened. Well, what's interesting, of course, in, in the NFL is that it's not even just trades. It's lost players. So the comp- the compensatory pick. Yeah, the compensation so like system. Baseball has that, too. They've talked about that in the NBA. I don't like compensation systems. I just think they create, like, an artificial, like, you have formulas and stuff of which, you know, how many picks and stuff. And I think it creates an artificial thing. I think if you made it a formal uh sort of thing where you can write in like what happens based on different team outcomes uh that would be better yeah cool what anything that you had 
from no, the I was just play off you. Um, <laughs> you know, <I> think. <laughs> Good team. <laughs> High five. <laughs> High five. <laughs> exactly. Um, what would be the main thing? I, I mostly was interested in talking about the player development stuff. I know that baseball's ahead on that, so that was that was the most interesting part. I'm glad you asked him about it and you got him to actually say something. That's uh, I know. I was that's not easy with Andrew. Yeah. So well, all right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks to Andrew Friedman for joining us. He's obviously been very busy after winning the championship. Well, also, especially since their season is supposedly starting in 20 days or so. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. So, Daryl, always great to spend time with you. Thanks, thanks to our team for keeping us real. Thank you to the MIT Sloan students, especially Andrew Lynn and Maggie Riddle. Thank you to our listeners. Hope you had fun. Thank you, Oracle. In sports, as well as business, analytics drive the actions you need to succeed. Oracle Analytics provides one of the most comprehensive AI-powered analytic capabilities for both business and IT. When you're ready for peak performance, it's Oracle Analytics for the win. If you enjoy this podcast, please submit questions, comments, or future topic ideas to trashtalking at sloansportsconference.com. Is it